Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma Crew. I am so glad you are joining me today. I have a guest that has been on the show before. She is an author, Emma Stevens. She wrote The Gathering Place and was on the show discussing that book a few months back. She is back today with a second book. It's called A Fire is Coming, and she goes into depth a little bit more about her relationship with her therapist that she briefly mentions in her first book. After that first book was published, it was gnawing at Emma to maybe go a little bit deeper into what happened with her therapist. And let me tell you, this is a thriller. It really should be a movie. It reminds me of Fatal Attraction, but therapist style. It's really good, really riveting, but at the same time, gives us some education on how people in authority can use their power to manipulate others. Let me tell you a little bit about Emma. Emma Stevens is a U.S. domestic adoptee from birth and has survived layers of trauma that have put her on multiple journeys. She developed the inner strength and courage to surmount the many struggles she faced. Her traumas were born from first being relinquished and then becoming an adoptee who struggled with being forced to wear an impossible mask of playing the part of the good adopted child. Her childhood upbringing of an authoritative cult-like family predisposed Emma to several more struggles. One of them was falling prey to an exploitative therapist where she unknowingly entered a cultic one-on-one relationship with her psychologist. Someone who was to help support and provide healing instead held Emma captive in a psychological nightmare. Because of these past traumas, it's Emma's desire to be part of the movement that is dedicated to help bring forth change to the way our world views the needs and support of adopted individuals, as well as bring awareness of the exploitation that can occur by the hands of counselors, therapists, and other healthcare professionals. By sharing her experience of being exploited by her abusive psychologist slash social worker, Emma feels strongly to expose and bring light to what an unethical, boundaryless professional therapy situation may look like. This memoir is Emma Stevens' second book. Her first book was The Gathering Place, an adoptee story. She has an undergraduate degree in journalism and has completed master's level coursework in psychology, specializing in marriage, family, and child counseling. She has two adult children and two cat children who she adores. I hope you enjoy my interview with Emma Stevens, author of A Fire is Coming. Emma, welcome back to the show. Hey, Melissa. So good to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited about your new book, A Fire is Coming. Um, Great book. I told you, I think it should be a movie. It's crazy, exciting, and very informative. I really think this is an important topic, um, and I want to dive into some of the things that you talk about. But in the introduction of the book, you said, this is my story of how something that was supposed to be an altruistic and loving plan for my life, known as relinquishment and adoption, instead set me up a series of traumatic events that would launch me on multiple journeys of recovery. So tell us a little bit about what your second book is about and why you wrote it. 
Oh, well, I would say that it reads a little bit like a psychological thriller, like you just mentioned, but I'm glad to hear you say it was also informative. Yes. Because I think this kind of exploitation happens a lot more than gets reported. And it's really important for um, any any client to know that it's the doctor, the the therapist or the counselor, it's always their responsibility to hold the boundaries, the therapeutic boundaries. So in my book, I try to take the reader through how it happened to me. I can only speak from my history of what happened to me. My Achilles heel was being adopted because I take it into the book also of where adoption for me was um, a little cult-like with the family that I was put into. They didn't treat me very well. And then there was the whole adoption industry that's a little bit uh, uh, cult-like in the way the narrative has to only be beautiful and it can't be anything else. So Mm -hmm. there's that narrative of it can only be one thing, black or white. Um, And then from there, I try to take, um, make the parallel that all the relationships All the decisions I've made throughout my whole life have been an adaptation of who I felt people wanted me to be and expected me to be, which landed me right into the hands of a therapist whom I asked to help me with adoption angst, marital problems, infertility, and maybe even depression. And she did anything but help me with any of those issues. She saw me as a addition to her her love life. She wanted to make me her mate. And I believe she knew that from the get-go when she accepted me as a patient. So in the book, I try to take the reader and hopefully an accurate way of where they can understand how these things could happen to anyone, Yeah, not just to an adoptee, but we're all vulnerable when we go to a counselor because you have to be, that's the nature of the game. They can't help you if you don't get vulnerable and be willing to work on your issues. Exactly. So um, your therapist, or Dr. Brenner in the book, um, it seems like she used so many tactics to keep you under her spell. Like I saw bullying and controlling, but then, you know, loving and kind. And at one point you said that you were obsessed with her and it seemed like you were intimidated, but also like so reliant on her from the very beginning, really. And so how did Dr. Brenner manipulate you into getting you to trust her from the start? I think certain sociopathic types, like my ex-psychologist was, they have honed in on their skills of covert hypnotic techniques. And in the book, I talk a lot about how she uses her professional eyeglasses and doing a long penetrating stare and maybe looks over her glasses at me. And remember, I was, uh, I mean, I was a young minded 30 year old. There are other 30-year-olds that were, you know, a lot more mature than me. But at that time, I was still very fresh of being an adaptation of everything in my life. I was just trying to be what everyone wanted me to be. So I played right into the role of whatever um, situation she wanted to manipulate me into being. She used information control meaning that she would filter what I got to hear. She would isolate me from my husband at the time and my family and my friends and my work. She kept me from doing my job properly to where by very soon in, all I knew is I needed her for, I thought I needed her for my very survival. Yeah, that's what it sounded like to me too. 
Um, and then you also talk about super therapists. Tell us what a super therapist is. I looked at that term from a cult expert. Her name is Yanya Lalich, and she's um, a very well-known cult expert. And she turned, I think she coined the term or along with others, the super therapist. And that's where um, they seem to be omniscient. They're kind of godlike or goddess-like, and they have this all-knowing, like a guru. And as I found out later in life, there are no gurus. Don't put anyone on a pedestal ever. That's the worst place. <laughs> if you love someone, don't put them on a pedestal. But she used that to the, the hilt because she had that doctor status. And I was already uh, easily manipulated by authority because my parents were very authoritarian, totalitarian, and used those methods. It seemed very familiar to me. So I... I caved in very easily, even though, even though I had red flags going off saying something's not right. Yeah. But I didn't think I had a right to question a doctor. Right. So almost like a cult leader, how those how a cult leader can get so many people to follow them kind of sounds similar. Well, they call it a one-on-one -on -one cult situation. And it, it, you know, cults don't have to be a group. They don't have to be an organization. They don't have to be religious. They can be, you know, the cult of bodybuilding, the cult of yoga, whatever. It, all it takes is a sociopathic leader that people attribute, um, you know, the charismatic things that they fall prey to and lift that person up to a, you can't even question that person. Yeah. That's all it takes. <laughs> Let's talk about what you discovered about oxytocin and what role it played in what happened with Dr. Brenner? What connection did you make with that? Well, first of all, that was huge in my healing. Um, fast forward to present day therapy where I have two wonderful therapists and one of them said to me, you know, I was still expressing shame over the whole relationship and what happened. And, and he was the first to say, uh, about the hormone oxytocin and that it's the love hormone. And so then I started researching it more and realized that's exactly what the emotional hook she had into me. And she knew that early on because I came to her for adoption help saying, I don't know if it has to do with anything of why I have all these problems in my life, but um, I did put that right in her hands. And she said, I'll become the mother you never had. And so from that point forward, she used the transference and made me attached to her. Um, she knew exactly what she was doing. Yeah. So talk about oxytocin and, and the birth process and how the mother and child, how that is. Well, from my understanding, it's a very much needed hormone. It's the course that nature takes for uh, bonding mother and child together. And it's that skin to skin contact immediately from the mother that you were with for nine months um, since conception. And if you don't have oxytocin, then I think um, there's a, a real trouble with the bonding attunement attachment process. So developmentally speaking, if we don't get that, then there's a lot of uh, adaptations that have to happen for you to try to search to get that to, you know, not only survive, but to thrive. Yeah. So you were kind of craving that um, with Dr. Brenner and she was kind of filling that role as an adult. Yeah. And all of that being, you know, unconscious to me at the time. But when I later learned about it, it all made sense. Yeah. It all fit together. Yeah. 
And you also talk about genetic sexual attraction and adoption. And that's something that a lot of people don't even know about. I think I've heard about it once. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that is? Uh, That was another thing that I found out not too long ago, maybe two, three years ago. And I stumbled across it in all my research. And it fit perfectly also that if you think of the oxytocin and you have to it kind of requires a skin to skin contact and that love bonding situation. It just makes sense as an adult, when I met her, that it translated from not being a baby anymore, needing a mother's contact. But as an adult, that's another way we express love. Mm -hmm. So it followed, but I didn't look at her in a sexual way. I, I truly didn't, but I knew she did to me. And I think it was more me wanting to attune to her and give her what she wanted but now that I know what I know, it was really sexual assault. Yeah. And, and no more than, you know, a predator with a child because they've become so vulnerable and stripped of their defenses and sense of agency. She took total advantage. And I was confused of, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lesbian. Um, and I couldn't understand why I wanted her to hold me all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the genetic sexual attraction that really speaks directly to that. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely, it felt like it was not her first rodeo doing this. And she even expressed that to me. Yeah, that's so crazy. So Dr. Brenner did some pretty crazy and intrusive things to you, and yet you still craved her attention. What was it like to know and see the red flags, but still allow her to have control over you? The cognitive dissonance that I was feeling made me feel Uh, Like I wasn't going to survive this whole relationship. I didn't know where it was headed. It felt like total disaster hell. But at the same time, I couldn't detach from her. Even after I flee from her, I still was attached for a very long time. And it took many years of figuring out what happened, doing research, talking to good reputable therapists before I even was able to... um, let go completely. Yeah. I've seen that in a lot of adoptees, including myself, where I know that this road I'm headed on is like your books of fire is coming. Like I'm walking towards the fire. It's not coming towards me. I'm going towards it. And I know that I'm going to self-destruct or I don't, you know, I don't know how or whatever, but I just know this is bad, but you just keep walking towards it. Yes. And here's another thing that we all, we don't ever go into something like, oh, there's a fire. I'm going to go jump right in the middle. We are enticed because there's a kernel of truth. There's someone offering you your heart's desire. And it only happens as a very slow calculated way of all of a sudden you find yourself in flames in the fire and you go, how did I get here? Yeah. But it's a very slow, insidious, calculated way that a sociopathic person gets you there because they first have offered you your heart's desire. Mm. And that's very culty. Oh, yeah. Across the board. Yeah. Um, So even after you were able to break free from her, you fell into a dark depression um, after literally escaping from her. Um, Why were you so depressed? Mm. Well, I was supercharged after I left her, but that really did dissipate. After I was no longer in her presence and seeing her on a regular basis, the core issue was still remaining within me of why I attached to her in the first place. 
And I think it's a very deep psychological thing. It wasn't ever about her, never was about her. I was still, you know, very wrapped up tight in whatever, how she got me psychologically in the first place. And until I started to unroll and unfold all of that and try to get in touch and fill in a, you know, a blank sheet of paper of what actually happened, there's where my healing slowly, slowly started to happen. It had nothing to do with her. Was there something that triggered in your brain that I have to finally get out of this? Like what happened? Yeah, thank you for that. That just reminded me that she actually did me a favor by showing me her crazy because if she hadn't let the mask start slipping from her very professional uh, appearance and her mannerisms and her behavior, if it would have been an easy, as easy to get away from her. But as her mask started to slip and she got more and more bizarre, she started resembling my adoptive mother. Mm. And so I started seeing things, little cracks and slivers of clarity. And um, that was enough to fuel all of my faculties to get the hell away from her. So you kind of made that correlation. It kind of clicked in your head and you were like, okay, then that's kind of the trigger that helped you to break free of that. Yeah. For that moment, I was able to see she's not even who I thought she was. I'm sure though, you still have that nagging pull of if I leave, what's going to happen to me? You know, like, like you said, it's almost like a survival thing to just keep holding on to her. So I'm sure it was kind of a tug of war. Well, she also told me, and this is very classic with any uh, doctor or counselor or therapist that has an inappropriate sexual relationship or even a just, you know, crossing boundaries is they always tell you it's your fault. Yeah. It's so classic. Yeah. You can't tell anyone because you wanted this relationship just as much as I did, or this was a special relationship. I'm above the law. And this is because we truly love each other. Yeah. And they get you to buy into that. And then there's your shame because you think, oh, yeah, I am doing this, um, even though I don't know why I'm doing this. You've lost all sense of agency yeah. over your life, right. but yet they've told you it, it's all your fault. Right. This is what you wanted. This is what you wanted. Yeah. Um, so you're an adoptee. So how specifically, because I mean, anyone could, like you said, anyone can fall into something like this. How did adoption specifically, though, play a role in you falling prey to Dr. Brenner? I would say definitely, and I know some people don't like the term primal wound, but for me, I really resonate with the idea of the separation of baby from mother, the biology you've known, you just never were two things until that moment when they separate you from your biology. And I think I um, shattered at that moment in that well, it's also the, the break of oxytocin, if you want to get scientific about it. And that's how she got me because that was my heart's desire. And she gave it to me on a silver platter. Yeah. You also talk about finding a stellar therapist. What does a stellar therapist look like? Well, it's someone, it's a therapist that also has a therapist and knows absolutely that we're all fallible. We're just people. Don't put anyone on a pedestal and um, it's that you have good rapport with them. It's that they don't keep you two hours instead of one hour or that they uh, only keep you 30 minutes and they're supposed to keep you an hour. It um, has a lot to do with how much they talk about themselves. 
because they really shouldn't. It should be, I think the ratio is 80-20, that it'd be about you, 80%, and maybe only 20%. I think that's even a little high, to yeah. tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be a very ind- big indicator. Also, if they told you what to do, if they tell you what your insights are without the light bulb moment being your own, that's a red flag. Yeah. I know there's therapists that will make you feel like you're my favorite client, you know, and they make you feel so special and like, they might spend that extra 15 minutes or, you know, like that. And, um, I had a friend that had a therapist like that and she just was, would beam about her therapist. And then the one time, you know, the therapist didn't respond or call her back or do something to follow through with something that she was supposed to do. It was like, but you know, yeah. And you could just see like, that's not healthy. Like that was, that's not a healthy exchange right there. Like exactly. It's outside the therapeutic boundaries. Yeah. Not very professional. That's what yeah. I'm- well, and here's some, ob- they're not your friend. They're your therapist. That's right. And here's some very obvious ones. For me, I did not know that your next door neighbor does not qualify to be your therapist. And mine was my exact next door neighbor. That's how we met at our mailbox. And that's where she handed me our card. And right then she should have referred me to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, then another, another thing is don't let ever exchange phone numbers or let them invite you over to their home or introduce you to their dog or their mate or their family. Yeah. Yeah. Besides seeing a therapist, what other things have you found helpful in your healing journey? I've done a ton of research. (laughs) I really thrive on finding validation. I wrote the book and then I found organizations like hashtag I got out. Oh, wow. And that was from the Nexium group, uh, Sarah Edmondson. She developed a group of, you know, you've probably seen The Vow on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, she developed that hashtag I got out website. And it's just a support group. I've found all these support groups to help me through all my multiple journeys. And they're very helpful to find out information, which, you know, is a big reason of why sociopathic people can get you is if you have limited information. So I made it my job to inform myself, educate myself. I went and got a um, master's. Well, I studied my master's of psychology. I didn't exactly finish, but I did do the academic work. That was huge in helping me deprogram from her because my therapist at the time, she was not equipped. She didn't know the first thing about how to deprogram someone that had been in such a high power psychological situation. Yeah. I don't know. I I really attribute self-education and then connecting with other people, finding out I wasn't alone and then finding podcasts. And it's just really, it continues to this day because this happened 29 years ago. Wow. Yeah. The other thing that is a, a therapist, if they are seeing you, they should not then start seeing your husband at the time. Like that's a, conflict of yes therapy rules like you're not supposed to do that either but I'm sure she got like a lot of information from him to manipulate you yeah it was how she was able to break the marriage almost completely apart too yeah planting those ideas of oh this marriage is not going to last this is terrible and 
Um, so it just at that point, I just took everything she said as golden. Yeah. And it was hard for me to separate what was truth and what wasn't. Right. What role did authenticity play in your healing process? Talk about authenticity at the end of the book. Yes, that is from research that I've done reading from Gabor Mate. Mm. And he's got a book called The Myth of Normal. And it is such a good book. And if you can't, if you can't read that thick of a book, it's huge. I got it on Audible, 17 hours, but it's very good. I never got to a point where I wanted to fast forward through anything. And his son, Daniel, uh, is the narrator, his adult son. Okay. So it's a really, really good book. He talks a lot about when we're born, we have to have attachment because we will die and there, there you go back to oxytocin again. It's it's where nature intended us to be able to thrive. We needed that bonding, that love bonding from our biological source. And um, then he said at a certain point, um, we have to discover our authenticity because then you're basically killing self if you don't ever reach that level of now I'm going to get in touch with my authenticity, you know, true self versus false self. And right. hopefully we find a balance on a spectrum with that too. If we don't have to detach from everyone to have our authenticity. So it somehow gets fluid at some point. And he talks a lot about that in his book. And it meant a lot to me because I could relate it directly to uh, my adoption, my relinquishment, being adopted by my adoptive parents, how I had no choice but to choose the attachment because I was not allowed to be authentic that could mean we're going to take you back to the adoption agency because you're not working out. Right. How long have you been working on being authentic? When did you discover that that was an important, important mm -hmm. piece? Seven years ago, almost seven years ago. And the catalyst was that I uh, be, was able to use the words, I'm an alcoholic. I'm powerless over alcohol and got into a rehab situation and got sober and went to a group called um, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. Mm. And it helped give me the principles of, you know, if the 14 laundry list is what they call it. And it really kind of applies to most households because we're all dysfunctional in a certain degree. Right. But it's on a spectrum again. Mine was pretty severe. Mm. And so I started working on all of that, which... I was able to start getting on a path of emotional sobriety, emotional maturity. And um, that led into discovering, dismantling who I thought I was, what I thought about adoption, what I thought of who I thought God was, what spirit I thought God was, and just what I was doing on this earth. It all just exploded. And for the last seven years, I've been coming out of my own fog on multiple journeys, more and more and more. And it just really gives me a lot of joy these days because each time I expand, I have new chances of being liberated into something more and more. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too. When you were talking, I said that that's the moment you started coming out of the fog was probably when you decided to go and be sober and just start walking in that direction. It truly was the only way. Yeah, sounds like it. Because until I got my prefrontal cortex working correctly and got it healed, which is, you know, the decision making 
part of our brain. I had to give it long enough to be sober. And then once I did, it just, my life really started taking off. Yeah. Um, lastly, what is something I would like to end with this question? What is something that you would like adoptees to know? I'm taking a deep breath right now. <laughs> we talk a lot about coming out of our own fog, whatever that might mean to each one of us. Um, and as advice, we usually say, go get counseling because it'll be very helpful for you to get to know yourself. But I would say a caution is make sure you check with the board of ethics that your counselor, therapist, doctor is of good standing. Um, make sure you look at things like health grade on the internet to see how many stars they have. Look at the comments to see what they say about the therapist. Well, you can interview your potential therapist, your doctor, you have that right. I never knew that. Yeah. So I think the more we broadcast that we give people permission and say, oh, I didn't know I had a right to do that. The better off we'll all be to make sure we're in a safe place. Yeah. And you actually ended up reporting Dr. Brunner. So would you recommend people speak up and say something? I think that's an individual decision because it is difficult. Mine was difficult, but yet I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I hadn't. And I didn't really actually thwart her that much because as you and I discussed beforehand, she's still practicing for yeah. $400 an hour. So scary. But I laid the groundwork for the next person that it will happen. And these are serial offenders. They truly usually are. And they'll see, oh, well, there's another account here that someone says the exact same story. And so there's just a better chance. And um, I feel like I had a personal responsibility to protect others. Yeah. Now, if somebody looks her up, would they see that you reported her? They can if they know where to look. You'd have to you know, know the websites to look at to see if there are any citations or you know, if this therapist is of good standing, um, and even that might not be enough because it could have fallen off the record by now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's where I think when you go and have an interview with these people and you check them out thoroughly and you don't pay for it because they're doing you a service. Yeah. You're employing them. Exactly. You, you can hire and fire your doctor, your therapist, it's okay. I tell my patients that all the time. I'm like, you can, you can fire your doctor. It's okay. <laughs> you really, people need permission for that stuff. Cause like you yeah. said, they're in a, you know, they are seen as an authoritative figure that you are not supposed to question. And I think we slip back into a childhood role of where we do think we're supposed to mind ourselves, mind our manners and not question yeah. anyone of authority. Yeah, exactly. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on or talk about? Well, I think there's the idea of being a cult hopper. I put that in my book too, because um, it's a mentality of, for me personally, from relinquishment adoption to my family, to my marriage, and then to uh, Dr. Brenner, it was going from a very familiar abusive situation to the next, to the next, to the next. And until I stopped that cycle mm. and um, became an advocate for myself and found healing, it was going to continue. 
Yeah. And I would just urge other people and try to get educated the best way they support groups. I love my adoptee community so much. I think they've helped me more than sometimes my DNA family finding them. That's been all very helpful, but the community, they speak our language. Yeah. And it's something we've never heard before as an adoptee of someone saying me too. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It's great. Well, thank you so much for this book. Um, I'm sure I know it took a lot of courage to decide to be so vulnerable telling the story. And it's just so important for adoptees to be aware of the pitfalls um, that can happen. So thank you for sharing this part of your story with us. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thanks. Emma's story is so hard to believe. And I had to keep reminding myself as I was reading the book that this is a true story. These things really did happen to her. You really need to get the book and read it. It is one of the best written adoptee books that I have read so far. It will be coming out in audio form very soon. And as this airs, it might already be out. So be looking for that. Emma will also be in Louisville, Kentucky at the end of March at the Untangling Our Roots Summit. And she will be there signing her books. This is an adoptee event. They will have tons of things to do there. Speakers, classes, authors, podcasters, all related to adoption. So if you are in the Louisville area, you might want to look up the Untangling Our Roots Summit. The dates are March 30th through April 1st. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please rate and review on your listening platform. We want to get the word out and educate the world on adoption. And believe it or not, your review that will only take a couple of minutes will help do that. I have a new website that is mindyourownkarma.com. So if you are interested in knowing a little more about me or being on the show, or looking up some episodes, everything is on the website. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.